0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to an encore episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast. I'm Robert Miller, your host. Steve Hackett of Genesis is an international superstar guitarist. He's a legend from prog rock to classical. Listen again as we discuss Genesis, his current world tour, which is coming to the U.S. shortly, and much more in this wonderful episode from this past September. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi Everybody, welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners now in 199 countries. Can you believe it? I'm Robert Miller, your host. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming a prog rock superstar to the podcast. My guest is Steve Hackett, the guitarist for Genesis from 1971 to 1977. This was the band's classic era alongside Peter Gabriel, Tony Banks, Mike Rutherford, and some guy named Phil Collins. His guitar work was a key element of the Genesis album's nursery crime to foxtrot, to wind and wuthering, and including the classic, Selling England by the Pound. Since leaving Genesis, he's released over 30 albums, In addition to his rock and roll chops, he's a virtuoso classical guitarist and composer whose work has been praised by no less than Yehudi Menuhin. That's a name you don't hear too often these days. Not in rock. (laughs) He was inducted with Genesis into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2010, and he's currently on tour with Genesis Revisited, Foxtrot at 50. And in the middle of this episode, like I do with all my musician guests, we are going to do a song fest. I've picked out a handful of Steve's songs, and we're going to play them and talk about them, and you'll get the backstories. And nobody else does this in podcasts. And you know that I like to feature a song of mine in each episode underneath the introduction and at the end. And I try to make the song relevant somehow to my guest And in this instance, even though I'm not a prog guy, I decided to feature the song Yeah, Yeah, that I wrote for the album PGS7. It may not be prog, but it rocks, just like Steve Hackett. So, Steve Hackett, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby.
1: Hi there, Robert. That's quite a a build-up you've given me there. You know, it's, it's extraordinary. Is your heart more drawn to rock, or is it more drawn to fusion or progressive or classical, how would you catch it yourself? Because you are no strangers to success yourself.
0: Well, I thank you for that. You've turned it around. You're interviewing me. I like that. (laughs) Yeah, why not? I came of age musically in the 60s. So the British invasion era, which is what we called it here in the States, that was my first era. Of course, my high school band played all the music of that era. But then I got into fusion. Fusion was my thing in the seventies, right? And uh, you know, Weather Report and Chick Korea, all of those guys. Mm-hmm. But you know, along the way, Genesis and Yes and those prog bands, I loved them all.
1: Yeah, there was a lot of crossover. I think that you know, fusion influenced some of that, and 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 um, we influenced some fusion. And and it's often wrong to think that you know, guys on the other side of the pond don't get to hear what we do and, v- and vice versa. So, um, you know, it, it's quite interesting, all of that. Um, uh, ch- talking to Chester Thompson, who joined Genesis for many years, um, I worked with them in, in, in 1977 and, um, you know, they were aware of, of things that we'd done. So of course we were aware of Mahavishnu and, and all of that. And, uh, and then latterly catching up with what John McLaughlin had done before that, you know, with all the associations right. with Miles Davis and all those incredible keyboard players that he had in and out of his band. So,
0: yep.
1: um, you know, that was a kind of school of, of fusion. But I, I guess uh, true music is, is is fully inclusive and not just progressive. It needs to be able to involve all these separate things that you might call collision, the idea that... Um, there are trained musicians and instinctive musicians, and when they come together, they produce something else. Um, I think it's important to be able to you know, sometimes, sometimes go to the score sheet, other times to be able to just use that as a springboard, be able to jump off it. So uh, not everyone can do that. There are fabulous musicians who read the dots, and that's what they do. But there are others, McCartney, for instance, you know, cannot communicate with an orchestra on their terms, but he can instinctively say, "Well, I think you know the harmony needs to go up there, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera.
0: It, it always has knocked me out that Lennon and McCartney both had no real formal musical training, and yet look at the incredible music that they came up with. But to your point, one of the reasons I got into fusion is because, for me, it combined the power. Of rock and roll with the amazing musicianship that so many of the you know the jazz guys had yes and when you put those two things together and also at that time the the radio stations and the promoters would mix and match groups I've told this story before on the podcast I went to see there was a place in in New York City called the Fillmore East which you may have played at in your day sure and Bill Graham used to mix and match the artists that he put together on the bills in such a way that it was fantastic. So I went to see the Who that were and their opening band was Miles Davis, okay? Right. And so you had these two different audiences and each was exposed to the music of the other band and it was just a fantastic time.
1: Yes. Well, you know, that was hugely interesting. I remember uh, a London's marquee in 1969 I was watching um the John Sermon octet, followed by King Crimson. And um, it was heady stuff. Each band did a short set, and then you got John Sermon again, then you got King Crimson again. And these days you can't imagine hauling equipment on and off that tiny stage to be able to do that. But they seem to be able to, to manage that. And um, what you've got was, it was it was couched in the terms of new paths. So that was the idea that, that it, in a way, Music was going somewhere else now, you know, and that there was some commonality um, amongst the two bands. That there was a nod to jazz, but you had the power of electric stuff. So I, I quite agree with you, and I, and I also found the, the term fusion absolutely compelling. I always liked that the idea of fusing different schools of thought together. So in terms of an ideal, I think it's the most articulately named brand of music that you could have so i understand entirely why you were drawn to that
0: you made me think of a funny image when you talked about the bands going back and forth you know at your king crimson thing when the beatles first came to america the second place that they played after new york was washington dc and there's a famous video on the internet they played in the round but they didn't have anybody at that time to help them on stage. So here you find Ringo, like, turning the drums, okay, in between the numbers. Unbelievable, is They it? didn't have anybody to help them.
1: I know it's like a, like a function band, you know, the, 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 the most famous function band in the world, you know. I've just got, someone's just bought me yesterday Get Back, which I haven't seen yet. And I gather it's, you know, compelling viewing because it sounds like you're probably a
0: Beatle fan. You mean the new documentary? Yes.
1: It's uh-huh. it's incredible stuff. Funnily enough, I'm working with a company in Japan where they've got hold of footage of the Beatles in Japan and they literally wouldn't let them leave the um the hotel room. They had beds literally all next to each other, just like in A Hard Day's Night. In other words, this was no fantasy. This was you know, this was their lives and one of them made a break for it. I think it was George, managed to get away and get into a cab and get to go downtown. And then I think security or the police caught up with him and they brought him back. And my God, it was a very controlled world. And you think this was just prior to them playing the Philippines and the debacle that went on then. But uh, anyone who thinks it must have been easy and wasn't it great to be a Beatle? My God, what a price was, was paid for all of that.
0: You're right about that. Okay, I got to ask you the question. When I was reading up on you, I read that you put an ad in the newspaper or in Melody Maker or something like that back in 1971 that you were looking for a band. Yes. And you wound up with Genesis, which is like hitting the lottery. Okay, tell me about that situation. I will.
1: Uh, It took me five years. Five years of ads, okay, and I met lots of musicians. Um, Most things went nowhere. I did get to make an album with the band a year before Genesis, a band called Quiet World. We didn't do any gigs. And then uh, Peter Gable gave me a call because I had, the wording of the ad was couched in in very idealistic terms. And I think that's what drew him to it. And um, he gave me a call. And um, then I was almost immediately auditioned. I was still living at home and I was playing duets with my brother who was playing flute and sometimes he would play guitar while I switched to harmonica because I I grew up listening to blues, and I'd been a, a blues harmonica player. I'd been playing harmonica for 10 years before I'd even touched guitar. Really? So, um, yeah, it's strange that actually my first instrument with, was that, and, of course, I loved all the great harmonica players. I got to spend time with Larry Adler in London. I was privileged enough to see Paul Butterfield Blues Band, an wow. incredible lineup with Mike Bloomfield, who worked so wonderfully with Al Cooper, with, with Bob Dylan, Elvin Bishop. So there were three lead instrumentalists, and on the night that I saw them, they're absolutely on fire, that was extraordinary. I'd been playing harmonica all my life, and then suddenly I didn't recognize the sound of my own instrument. I'd never heard amplified harmonica played in such a controlled way with this sort of uh, incredible distortion and, 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 and um, uh, vibrato. It was so controlled and so many tones. There's still tiny instrument that seemed limitless in his hand. He made it sound like a guitar, made it sound like a trumpet. And, and I was thrilled that many years later, after he passed, he was inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame, posthumously. So I do love the idea that not only performers, but but writers are celebrated. Sometimes, unfortunately, posthumously, but better late than never. Because right. they, um, he Butterfield was a genius, as was Larry Adler, who, who could who could sit down and and play you Rhapsody in Blue, one hand on the piano, yeah. one hand on the harmonica, and it was a party
0: piece. You're a hundred percent right, Larry Adler. Interesting guy that you mentioned. He's not as well known as somebody like Butterfield, but he was a wonderful player. And so was Stevie Wonder. I mean, Stevie Wonder yes. turned into a wonderful harmonica player.
1: Uh, wonderful. Um, as if his other skills as songwriter, singer, et cetera, all-round genius. Uh, extraordinary stuff. And he's written some extraordinary songs. Uh, and he is a wonderful harmonica player. He's, um, And it always swings and it always bounces. And there's always that repeat on it. So you know that that's him immediately. That's that's it. And he's and he works with um, chromatic and he's bending notes. And it's not easy to bend notes on on, on chromatic, much easier on, on the blues vampers.
0: I think he was like 13 when he did Fingertips, if you remember that. I think it was kind of his first single Fingertips Part One. OK, right. That was the way the re- the release was stated. And he's a 13 year old. He's a he's a blind black boy standing up there and he's playing the harmonica in an incredible way. And that was yes. where it all began.
1: Oh, it's extraordinary. Um, uh, yes, he's an absolute one-off. Um, Ray Charles was, was the hero, so I think he he emulated the look. That doesn't, doesn't sound like a, a contradiction with, with the glasses. But uh, again, you know, Ray Charles, I mean, it's from such a rich tradition and speaking about harmonica players, of course, Little Walter, who was the mentor, really, was the blueprint for, for Butterfield. Um, who's, <laughs> Little Walter famously said he was tired of being drowned out by, by guitarists, so he stuck his, his, his harmonica through an amp. And uh, y- you hear that incredible sound? It's already happening in 1954 or 55, Manish boy, muddy waters and it's it's already ripping they're already doing the sound the blueprint for stuff that was to happen 10 20 years later by by everybody else
0: you know what's interesting is that the you guys in england were more enamored of the american blues artists than american audiences were if it wasn't for the fact that you guys took american blues transformed it and gave it back to us I don't think that so many of those artists would have become as known as they finally did. So I always thank everybody that was part of that transition.
1: I think so. I'd read an an interview that Skip James's um, wife, widow, had had, had said and and said that because they covered one of his tunes with Cream, um, I think it was "I'm So Glad." it apparently paid for his hospital treatment and saw him through to the very end. Apparently, he, she was very grateful for that, which is ironic, of course. You know, why Why is it that, um, you know, it, why does anything need to be validated to that degree? But somehow, in a way, the spirit of, of, of that Stones album, Lonesome and Blue, Blue and Lonesome, whatever it was called, where they deliberately took tracks that had not been hits. And then suddenly it's a number one album. And I know you're no stranger to that yourself, that level of success. But, you know, suddenly a a validation or a revalidation of there was nothing wrong with the ideas. It was just right time, right place where you were born. The luck of the draw.
0: Yes. Well, success, you know, commercial success has nothing to do with the quality of the music as you probably know it's a it's a tricky thing to you know whether or not somebody becomes a commercial success it's the right time it's the right place it's the right circumstances but yes some of these things that you're talking about the great songs the great songwriters, the great musicians they stand the test of time that's how you can tell
1: that's it you know from from bach's time onwards you know bach being given a hard time by the church authorities because the, the music is is too complicated for them. So <laughs> they all had their pressures of of their time, you know. I don't suppose anyone said to them, we need a single, but there we go. <laughs>
0: yeah. They need a single. I often say if there were four guys that came out of Liverpool today, the first thing people would ask would be, How many tickets can you sell? Okay, as opposed to how great is your music?
1: well yeah i know that, that 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 there there is that you know there's 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 the music and there's the music business and those things sometimes they coincide and they they can they can work together when you get something like the beatles and you're getting great music and great and great business at the same time and the start of world music and and all the rest you know once their music grew up and became fully inclusive uh, you didn't know what you were going to get next you you get indian musicians you'd get guest appearances you didn't know you'd hear something if you were like me uh, you'd hear something on the radio and think absolutely marvelous wonder who that was find out later that was the beatles that was my experience of hearing i am the walrus and um it just sounded absolutely marvelous listening to it on a on a mono radio in the family's kitchen at home, thinking, "Who the hell was that and later it's just this extraordinary arrangement where there's so much going on, even live radio, it's surreal, there's so many things happening. The blueprint again, for so many things that followed the whole idea of slow, powerful music, as evinced by Zeppelin or some of the things that we did with genesis um the blueprint. Is there the idea of okay, yeah, we can go half time, Mr. John Bonham? Please come in here,
0: right? All right, so tell me this you were with Genesis during that classic period. I mean, this was one of the greatest periods, maybe the greatest period in the rock era that the early 70s till when you left in 77. What was it like? Talk about it now. You're looking back years and years later, it must have been unbelievable.
1: Well. You know, you have to remember that Genesis is a band that was formed at school. I joined them three months after Phil Collins joined. I just thought, well, maybe I'll stay for a year or so and then and then I'll, you know, do something else because bands didn't last. Right. Uh, I didn't expect it to last as long as it did during my tenure. And um, it was thrilling to see the growth of the band from something where we were playing to three men and a dog, if we were lucky, clubs, colleges, rising up through theatres, and eventually doing stuff on the international stage and eventually playing at Madison Square Garden. And and, uh, it was a great thrill for me. I I was very keen on the band um, expanding the keyboard arsenal. I, I wanted us to get a Mellotron straight away. I, I wanted us to get a light show. I, I knew that this work, I'd seen the Moody Blues, I'd seen King Crimson, I knew that it would make a huge difference. And uh, Peter Gabriel, who was the lead singer at, at the time, started to personify the songs and act them out in the same way that David Bowie did, and arguably Alice Cooper, where the presentation becomes incredibly important. You know, that that's it. We're, we're talking, I don't know, Ask a kiss, you know, what is it all about? You know, is it about the licks or is it about the other stuff? Blue to Mackey eyes, let's have more makeup, ba 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 ba. But it's the way the music is presented. I'm not saying that every band has got to have a gimmick. I think that whatever it takes to grab the audience's attention. Okay, so um, from Hendrix setting fire to the guitar, doing it with his teeth, playing the thing like that. Whatever it takes, but I noticed that we, as Genesis, we would often play the same music which had not been well received that fell on stony ground that latterly became so well received because we had a production with it, we were presenting it in a way that was we had a light show, we had ultraviolet lights that gave us the, the possibility of doing black light theater, plus also if you left those things on, it informed the rest of the colors to make it look slightly unreal. And so the reds became infrared and um, it looked as if you were watching a band on, on TV. Cause I, I used to go out front and, um, and see what it looked like and play with, the, with a long lead and see what it sounded like. I, I wanted to be involved with all those things that musicians don't usually take on board.
0: The audience experience in other words
1: that's right to be on stage and off at the same time and um it's a unique position to be in if you can afford production rehearsals which we could at that time we probably lost a fortune we used to we used to lose fortunes on these on these tours that that was it you know toured lamb rice down on broadway for nine months and, and we were in the hole for for a quarter of a million pounds and the t- At the time, that would have been half a million dollars, you know, kill yourself to do this stuff. And then you, you end up with that. But, you know, it's all, it's a rite of passage, isn't it? You know, if that's the price of admission, why not?
0: Well, you're talking about a form of entertainment that was both audio and visual. Okay. Yes. And some acts just didn't pay attention to the visual side of it. And others did pay attention. And the fact that you did the way you did it, to your credit, that was the way to do it back then.
1: Well, I think some acts, you know, were able to do it with stunning musicianship. You know, all the spin-offs from from Miles Davis, uh, Mahavishnu, arguably um, uh, Weather Report. You know, so much of that, and um, you know, wonderful. But I, I think it's yes, you've got that. You've got the the jazz sensibility. Uh, it implies that you have you know, cabaret presentation because, you know, the, the Blue Note clubs, and I've played some of them in in Japan, for instance, and um, I'm looking down the list and, yes, I'm doing this with my acoustic trio um, some years ago. And then next week, Stanley Clarkson, oh, I wanted to see him. You know what I'm saying? Yes. All of that. And and, uh, and yet the dedication of of jazz musicians, you have that where so many times, these guys are working 365 days a year, you know, playing places just to earn a crust. And there's there's no, there's no justice in that. It's just that, OK, that's the commitment. That's what you decided to do. At some point, everyone makes a choice. You're not going to be a Beatle. You're not going to do that. You're not going to be one of the shadows. You're not going to be in the ventures because you do something else. Are you gonna be a classical musician? Are you gonna be a jazz musician? Are you gonna fuse it? Are you gonna let it all collide? what are you gonna do? Is your ideal to have inclusive music, which means you can have an incredible tar player from Azerbaijan that you might meet in Hungary, as I've been lucky enough to do, to meet virtuosos and be able to say, yeah, let's have those on the record because people expect surprises. And albums should be surprising,
0: I think. Interesting. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller. My new single, All of the Time, is a playful, whimsical love song. It's light and airy and exudes the happiness and joy of being in love. The reviewers love it, too. Melody Maker has given it five stars and calls it pure bliss, an intimate sound with abundant melodic riches. Pop Icon also gave it five stars and called it ecstasy. You can stream all of the time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or any of the other streaming platforms. The links are in the show notes to this episode, and you can download it from the pgsstore.com. And if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast and give us a nice review too, if you're so inclined. You can do all of that and check out all of our episodes by visiting our website at followyourdreampodcast.com. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. Okay, I want to move to the second part of our interview. It's been fascinating to hear your views on all of this stuff. But I want to focus on you because you're a virtuoso in your own right. And I want people to understand and hear what we're going to be talking about. So the first song that we're playing right now is Fifth of Firth by Genesis. And you're selling England by the Pound record. The p- Tell me your recollections of that song and that album, if you would.
1: Um, I remember selling England by the Pound, taking shape very quickly. Uh, One of the tracks that we did was called I Know What I Like, and that became a hit single. It was a reject from the Foxtrot sessions, but luckily we did it the following album. I felt at that time that I was playing guitar in the best band in the world. We were doing the best of Selling England by the Pound live, best of Foxtrot and the best of Nursery Crime live. Um, Those three albums, we were celebrating those at a time when John Lennon gave an interview. Just as we were leaving New York, we couldn't get a gig anywhere between the East Coast and the West Coast. We were about to play at the Roxy in L.A. And Pete turned to me and said, I've just heard that that John Lennon said Genesis is one of the bands that he's listening to, that John Lennon was listening to. Now, I found out recently by a guy called Nigel Pierce, DJ from Norfolk. He said, well, yeah, well, I've got the interview where Lennon says there were two bands which he considered to be true sons of the Beatles, one of which was ELO, understandably. And the other one was Genesis. And and it's extraordinary to me because, because of the level of differences. You would think that, you know, maybe that would be a little too fussy for him, but maybe it's very Englishness was the thing that, that, that drew him to it. So apparently he used to get all the albums from Nursery Crime onwards sent over to him in, in, in New York. And my God, had I known that, it, that he liked that, you know, I mean... It would have been heady stuff, but I guess I found out a year or two later. And and I, in a way, you know, trying to keep the legacy alive of those songs and that era is is hugely important to me. So Firth and Fifth, that track was, uh, and I know it's a bit of a tongue twister because it's like there's the fourth bridge. So Tony came up with the title uh, Firth and Fifth, just to confuse everybody. Love and uh, a, a song about a river. And it was his melody played originally on piano, and I said, "Why don't we do it like this?" And I played it on electric guitar with bendy notes and and um, you know bits of improvisation around it and and simplifying the melody. But and then it ended up being a three and a half minute long uh, uh, solo, which was unheard of for Genesis at, at that point to give me that much space. And it's it's a gorgeous melody. So I think that's. Partly where that song comes alive, there are keyboard players who, who, who are busting their balls still to to get that intro right that that, that Tony played on on, uh, on on piano, and then it's done later on with the band uh, as a, as a synth solo. Uh, but it, it it is still an incredible um, piece of music, and just about every show I do these days with 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 the band I have, we we do that. So uh, it's it's important to celebrate that lovely.
0: It's a great number, and what a great endorsement from John Lennon at the time. So,
1: well, incredible. Yes,
0: con- congratulations on both. Okay, the second one we're going to is from Nursery Crime, which uh, yeah. was one of the albums you just mentioned, "The Fountain of Salmasis." Oh my- me about that one
1: okay well the title um came from greek mythology again it's a very melotron driven song um when we just acquired the Mellotron, we took the summer off and we were rehearsing in idyllic um conditions it was a hot summer of 71 and one day like i i we, we got this Mellotron off, off of King Crimson because um, I was mad keen, as I said, on getting a Mellotron. And I, we went down and we met Robert Fripp, and they had Mellotrons to spare and they were selling one of them. So we bought this one. They might've called it the Black Bitch. I don't know. It was painted black. It took firm, four men to lift it. A bit like pallbearers. You need four guys on each corner. It's like lifting a coffin, you know? Um, so this thing, wait a tonne. Sometimes it would deign to sing. Other times it would, um, how can you describe it? It would, uh, it would just die a death. Anyway, wonderful tune. Tony one day was playing the intro, one hand on on the uh, on the on the Hammond organ, the other hand on the mellotron, and I said that sounds absolutely beautiful. And he said, "Yeah, it's part of another tune called Catch." And I said, "Well, was that ever recorded?" he said uh, not really so i said i think we should use that and straight away it became the intro to the song and i know we went all out because we tried recording it at trident it didn't really work and then we went to air studios uh that george martin had in in london and we set up you know two stacks at one end of the room you know 40 foot wide studio you know and uh, we just stuck mics everywhere and and the roar of the Mellotron, it was really moving some air. And so it really worked when, when Tony was using the volume pedal on it. And I absolutely adored the song. I thought it was full of great melodies, a wonderful story, lyric by, by um, Peter Gabriel. It wasn't really a hit in its time, but it has become latterly because I think it's the, ba- the band at its most poetic and ambitious. It has its rough edges. It's a little embarrassingly out of time in places i think i'm the chief culprit but i've recorded it a few times since then and i absolutely love it it's a wonderful tune
0: it is a wonderful tune and speaking about the mellotron that's an instrument that you don't hear about too much these days for anybody that doesn't know what uh, steve is talking about if you just go back to strawberry fields where the Beatles use that Mellotron at the, on the beginning, the introduction, it's a, it's a wonderful sound. Okay. It kind of predates to me the, the Moog synthesizer, which came into yeah. you know use so much. Uh, and I love the Mellotron sound. Do you still hear them these days?
1: Uh, yeah. And I sometimes use, um, so I, I did some work for Mellotron and I gave them some samples um, of my playing and I said, how would you like us to pay you? And I said, can I have the string sound before it goes through the Mellotron pre, you know, the, um, so I've got the cleanest Mellotron in the world, which Roger King, our keyboard player uses. And um, it's, it's a wonderful sound. The Beatles sound that you're talking about was the Mellotron flutes. I think when we all first heard that, we thought it sounds like some sort of ancient organ, you know, it sounds old from the word go because you get the distressed sounds of distorted flutes playing played through the cheap heads, the playback heads on the Mellotron itself. So you've got this. It's a bit like getting a frame of a painting, which is deliberately distressed to look old. And it has this sort of distressed sound quality. It also gives it its alien otherworldly aspect as well, as evinced wonderfully.
0: It had a calliope type sound to me when I first heard it.
1: Exactly. It it did very much like a calliope, exactly like a steam organ on one of the right. Mississippi Queens, you know. Yeah, it, it, it's got that, but it's that magic, strange sound. So everything that comes through, the most popular sounds, of course, are the Mellotron flutes for that reason, the Beatles. Elton John used it. The strings which show up on, on everything from, from Michael Jackson to God knows what. The brass is absolutely Burr, it's it's all those brass instruments and then distortion upon distortion so that mixes very well with other instruments as well I mean it's it's truly rock and roll so we we, we often go back to it because the melotron is very characteristic we may mix it with other sounds to tart it up a little bit but um it's a fantastic noise
0: different type of sound for sure Okay, let's go to your acoustic side, which really yeah. interests me, because, you know, there are guys that are great rock players, and you've named a, a number of them as we've been talking, but not very many at all can play acoustically at your level, so I congratulate you again for that. I love the idea that Yehudi Menuhin loves your acoustic playing and composing. That's a name, as I said before, you don't hear it too often these days, and we're playing now Horizons from the Foxtrot album. your recollections on that
1: well um i was influenced by two classical sources with that one was hearing john remborn play a, a, a tudor piece uh, which was called the earl of salisbury uh, before he formed pentangle it was acoustic steel and a guy called terry cox playing a glockenspiel and it was lovely this 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 little piece and it was only a minute 30 seconds long those things from the time of, of, you know, Salisbury Henry VIII, Tudor stuff. um, The brevity of it uh, was, was gorgeous. And so I wrote something that was influenced by Bach, a cello suite, the, the number one cello suite, and did a variation on it and deliberately kept it to a minute and a half. The idea of, you can say it all in a, in a minute and a half, if, that's what it's it's non-developmental we're not going on into you know we're not trying to do an opus here it's just Mm -hmm. a little modest piece that was the hors d'oeuvre to the much longer suppers ready which follows it immediately so um i just funny enough this very day trying to capture that piece i I normally played on nylon guitar but to do the jump cut into suppers ready because we're doing the album its entirety i thought perhaps I'll do it all all, on electric and I'm using something on it that makes it sound acoustic, but um, it's a nice sound put through Leslie cabinets. You'll be familiar with Leslie cabinets as a, as a keyboard man, I'm sure.
0: Interesting that you can do it that way. I was envisioning when you were talking about this, that you'd have like a double neck guitar, acoustic on the bottom electric on the top, but I haven't seen anything like that.
1: Yeah, well, there's something that that makes it sound like a 12 string and a little bit of effect that our sound mix was doing up front. And um, although it's more difficult to play on an electric, it means I can go seamlessly from one track to to the other. And it's actually a lovely sound. I use the 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 um, the neck pickup, the very mellow neck
0: pickup. Okay, well, I'll have to listen to that one then when you do it live. Okay, the last song we're going to play is a live version of The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, which the original, I guess, was on Seconds Out. This is a live version from 2021, so I think it probably has your your current band playing this. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the the band and the sound and what your recollections are?
1: Uh, Well, uh, Peter Gabriel was going to leave Genesis. He was going to leave to work with William Friedkin, who famously directed the horror film, remind me of the title, The Exorcist. And um, I think Pete wanted an excuse to leave the band anyway. I mean, he was plainly going to be heading towards a solo career at some point. Because, you know, you've got a band like Genesis, you've got five writers. It's it's never going to last forever. Do you know what I'm saying? Not that lineup anyway. And um, Tony Banks was coming up with all this virtuoso keyboard work, you know, like... Uh, uh scribe in it, it's two-handed stuff and it's crossing over and it's very virtuosic and and um giving Rachmaninoff a run for his money. And you've got these very dense keyboard parts and very busy vocal lines, so there seems to be this sort of collision between the two of them. And arguably, while that's going on, you've got a counterpoint going on with the bass, playing another line again. And I thought to myself, What the hell does guitar do in the middle of this audio competition? So I did a little sort of bubbly thing and let the others, you know, take it. I'm just colouring it slightly because if I would have come in there with with power chords and all the rest, it wouldn't have worked. You had to have space. So it's a rocker, but it's got, I don't know, it's got aspects of Baroque going on. It's as if you're listening to two different time zones at the same time. Listen to the keyboard work, listen to the vocal and say, what is going on? Why, this, is, this is strange music. You know, I'm, I'm hearing the past and the future and this proto-punk thing that's going on because the story was about a kid, a Puerto Rican punk kid prior to punk rock happening. So the term punk comes from Shakespeare, it seems. You know, he refers to punk in one of his plays. It's supposed I to mean a Russian person. Yeah. Weird, isn't it? Yeah. So you think, you know, all these terms, like he came up with with, with punk, as far as I know, and then the term progressive, it's Richard Strauss talking about Edward Elgar's The Dream of Gerontius. So it's all this sort of historical stuff. I end up picking up on this stuff and think, no, no, progressive is supposed to be something else. isn't No, it's from the early 1900s. So there's nothing new in terminology.
0: Fascinating. So Shakespeare was the first punk rocker, huh? Okay. He's the first like punk that.
1: rocker. That's it. Yeah. Him and Mozart. Yeah.
0: All right. Terrific. You're on tour now. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the tour and where it's going and what you're doing.
1: Okay. I've been touring relentlessly since last autumn, last fall. And um people bought tickets three years ago for shows that we're only managing to deliver now. So it's been the busiest year I've ever had. Um, it's taken us to Australia, New Zealand, Japan, ba 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 the United States, Europe, Malta, and then some, uh, the UK, of course. But we were doing Seconds Out, Seconds Out and more, because it involves some solo stuff. And now it's time to do Foxtrot. It's 50 years old this year, the album from 1972. I'm in the middle of rehearsals doing that right now. Uh, in a few days, we'll be doing the first gig. And it'll take us everywhere, all over again. So we're off on that, we're off on that world binge again. I'm gonna take some time to record some new stuff at the beginning of next year, but we'll be busy up until the end of this year doing UK, some dates in Italy, five dates in Italy. Um, Back to Canada, which we didn't manage to deliver because of COVID and and a a few American dates uh, to support that because the cost of freight has gone up more information than you need. But, hey, you know, we're on a roll.
0: You're on a roll. You're an active guy. You know, you made me think of I I interviewed John Lodge from the Moody Blues not too long ago. And. uh, we were talking about the fact that here it is 50 plus years since he joined the Moody Blues and they had their big run. And I said, did you ever think that you would be doing this 50 years later? And he, he basically said, you know, I was 19 at the time. He says, my friends all said, what are you going to do when you're 21? Okay. (laughs) And he said, our hope, our wish was that our music would be relevant 20 years later. And here it is 50 years later. How do you feel about it? Again,
1: Beatles, there's this famous bit of film where they say to George, you know, George Harrison, uh, what? so w- when this all dries up in a couple of years, what are you going to do? Open a string of herders or or something, you know? And it's, it's like they had no idea of the legacy, the longevity, that that would be the classical music of the future, and no one ever does. And anything that survives you know, that length of time, I mean, most of us are just hoping to get our, our recording contract uh, renewed the following year. That's how ambitious you are. So you don't have to go off and do a day job somewhere else. Um, but no one has any idea of, of you know, rock and pop isn't meant to last, is it? You know, the Stones quote, you know, our love is like our music it's here and, and then it's gone. But actually, you know, Everything the Stones ever did goes into that classic um, memory, that memory shoot that they wanted to get rid of. No, it's going to stick around in people's minds and hearts. It's there to stay. I I loved them, you know, when they were first out. Route 66. Bam, you know.
0: It was wonderful, huh? Yeah. I agree with you. That original bang of what we call the British invasion with all those bands from the DC five to the stones, the yardbirds, et cetera. It was just a magnificent era. Okay. And it all, it whacked us right in the face and we haven't recovered ever since. And I hope we never do recover,
1: but you had Paul Butterfield, you know, you had, you had that. And, and, uh, you know, I'd been watching blues bands live. I'd been watching John Mayle. Absolutely loved John Mayle with Peter Green. Um, Genius stuff. Wonderful. but. That show, that that one night, they must have been playing to about twenty people tops, you know. And Eric Clapton afterwards said, "I can't understand why a band like that could fail in the UK, you know." And so, "Yeah, you ha- you you had it there, but maybe was it celebrated? Of course, yes, they played, they played Woodstock, you know. But but I don't think it was on on the film, um, not on the original version of the film. So I think you know." that right. chance of international fame that came to people like Joe Cocker and and all the rest wasn't, wasn't to be for, uh, for Butterfield, but a genius is a genius. And that's, that's how it is.
0: You said it. I agree. We're talking to a genius right now. A guitar genius. Oh, well, thank you, Steve Hackett. I really want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. I've been fascinating talking to you. I appreciate that. I really do. We are now going to listen again to the song that started off this episode. This is my song called Yeah, Yeah. I want to thank you so much for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at ProjectGrandSlam.com and at the PGSStore.com.